Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. One minute past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Maybe listening by rrr.org.au. Good morning, this is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Farm Chaco. Hello. Hey, Farm. How are you doing? Yeah, good. I'm so excited to be back after summer. Yeah, is this your first show back? It sure is. Oh, wow. Hey. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> let's get right into it. Yeah. Uh, excellent. And, um, yeah, let's – why not? And thanks very much to Tim Thorpe for uh, six hours of Vital Bits this weekend. As always, and uh, Andrew for Soulful Bits and Edith for Things to Do Today. Wonderful program as always. And, uh, yeah, you can catch Tim next weekend, 6 a.m., Saturday morning, if you're up at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. <laughs> Some of us maybe. <laughs> Many people are. Not me. I, I usually tune in at around, you know, have a little mini sleep in, wake up around 7.30, get a cup of tea. That sounds Tim. good. I was up at six last night, yesterday actually. But uh, yeah, the dulcet tones of vital bits, always a good start of your day. It is indeed. Uh, on today's program, let's launch right in. We'll shortly be catching up with our maritime archaeology guru, Rex Hunter. He's going to be talking about an announcement that was made a couple of weeks ago that the Endeavour... Uh, has actually been discovered in Newport Harbour in Rhode Island, near Rhode Island, um, off Rhode Island in the US. But why this announcement has actually sparked some serious controversy? Mm. Mm. Stay tuned. Is it the endeavour or is it not? <laughs> Rex will tell us. Well, he'll he'll explain anyway. Um, we are also going to be crossing to, uh, I believe, Queenscliff or Bowen Heads, she can let us know, to speak with Prue Francis. We spoke with Dr. Prue Francis a few times last year on the program um, to talk about ocean literacy and what ocean literacy means. And uh, we at the end of last year, we spoke to the seven principles of ocean literacy. And this, this week, today, we're going to pick up where we left off and talk about she, Prue's going to be talking um, starting global with uh, a, a new toolkit which is being developed by UNESCO it's called the UNESCO blue curriculum toolkit and how it can be used in the Australian curriculum and uh, then she's going to speak more locally about a survey called oceans IQ and the idea of this being the results are going to create a best practice standard of ocean literacy teaching oh that sounds amazing and uh, she's not going to give us a test is she <laughs> Because I know, I know you guys got a test last time she was on and I was listening and I was so glad I wasn't in it. I'm like, I'm going to lose my job. I was sweating bricks, farm. <laughs> I know. I was very nervous. We passed. <laughs> Would not have looked good if we hadn't. Um, and then, very exciting, we're crossing to New Zealand. Yes, we are. We're crossing live to New Zealand, actually to the uh, Auckland Museum. Um, so you guys might know that at the end of January, uh, a sunfish washed up on 13th Beach on the Bellarine Peninsula. And this is not an uncommon thing to happen. Sometimes they wash up on Kenneth River. We had one a few years ago, uh, one at Bo Morris a few years ago. And so I've been pretty obsessed <laughs> with ocean sunfish for many years, actually. And so I contacted uh, Dr. Marianne Nugo from the Auckland Museum to chat with us about her 10 years of research into this very mysterious species. We don't really know a lot about it yet. Uh, and also how you can help science progress. Uh, around this animal when you find a sunfish on the beach. So stay tuned. 
I saw one once when yeah. I was out on the water. It was, um, I think from memory, it was off the coast of Jervis Bay when I was up there doing a diving trip. And um, I remember being on the boat and seeing this kind of enormous big sort of disc off in the distance <laughs> and uh and the, the person driving the boat knew immediately what it was and so we kind of you know headed over there and had a look and it was this huge huge sunfish absolutely mind-blowing yeah and and was it laying flat on the surface yeah. of the water trying to sun itself yes yeah that's it amazing yeah, yeah. I've, I've dived with them in bali and it was i'll tell you the story one day it was one of the most amazing dives i've ever done in my life because they're so alien looking yeah and it, it took my brain a few minutes to wrap around what it was actually seeing. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're very majestic, very beautiful. So we will be having a chat with uh, Dr. Marianne soon. Brilliant. Really can't wait for that. Mm. And, you know, for all these years that we've been on this program, we've never really done this. We've never talked about sunfish and the fact she's got 10 years of research into this. I'm very excited yeah, about Yeah, and, and most of that research, actually the, the really groundbreaking stuff has only been happening in the last few years. So mm. she'll be updating us on that. Cool. Uh, Farm, I believe you have a little look at today's weather. Oh, we did. It's going to be beautiful, everybody. Melbourne has a top of 26 degrees and sunny today. Uh, clouds are increasing, though, with an afternoon cool change, so make the most of it during the day. Uh, we've got a slight chance of a shower in the southeast suburbs later tonight. Winds are northerly 20 to 30 k's an hour, and they'll be shifting south to southwesterly in the early afternoon, and then will be decreasing in the evening. Uh, tides at the Port Phillip Heads, the low tide will be at 929 uh, AM today, it says PM, but I mean AM, and the next high will be at 3.44 PM. And if you want to go for a snorkel or something in the north of the Bay, Morris, the next low is at 12.59 PM, and the next high will be at 6.37 PM today. Fantastic. Hey, big shout out to the good people from uh, Marine Care Ricketts Point, not Marine Care Ricketts Point, uh, Jawbone. Ah, yeah. Jawbone Marine Sanctuary. Yeah, yeah, they're heading out for a snorkel this morning. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah. oh, beautiful. So big shout out if you're out there at Jawbone getting ready to go for a snorkel because, God, you've got a great day for it. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely amazing. Go and look out for some uh, some pipe fish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Green pipe fish. They look just like the seagrass. Look closely. Um, we've got time for a little bit of news or things to plug. Have you got anything there? Yeah. Um, so if you are a community group or a school or um, anyone who wants to help protect Port Phillip Bay with some interesting projects, the Port Phillip Bay Fund has opened another round. Uh, this is, as you might know, a grants program that supports projects by the community groups and organisations who are working to protect and improve coastal habitats and marine ecosystems um, for their biodiversity values. It's sponsored by the Victorian government. And so community groups, non-government organisations, research institutes, local councils, schools and youth groups can all apply. And this round will be closing at the 15th of March for your applications and grants of up to $100,000 over two years are available for innovative large-scale projects and up to $25,000 for smaller one-year projects as well. So get in there, start calling around, contact your friends and uh, uh, think up some, dream up some beautiful projects to help protect the bay. It's uh, that fund has uh, supported some really wonderful work over the last few years, hasn't it? Yeah, There's absolutely. Some great stuff to come out of absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, one thing I also I wanted to mention was that I don't know if you know this farm. I didn't know until a press release came through via uh, from Sea Shepherd. Thanks, Elizabeth McCarthy, for sending this our way. It's World Whale Day today. Oh, 
Oh, I did not know. Look, every everything has a day, yes, so it's it about time we had a whale day. So Sea Shepherd sent this through, just drawing the attention to the uh, the threats and the dangers faced by whales in our ocean, from illegal fishing to shark nets. The ocean is a dangerous. It's a beautiful place, of course, and it, it's the only place for whales. Yes, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, a, a dangerous place for whales as well. So I'm going to call this one out because the Sea Shepherd do such wonderful work. They are calling for action to protect whales around the world um, from the devastating impact of industrial and illegal fishing as well as surprising but very real threats they face off Australia's own coastlines. And this is an interesting uh, and and very sobering uh, number here. Um, Each year it's estimated over 300,000 whales and dolphins die due to entanglement in fishing gear or as bycatch due to in uh, from industrial fishing vessels. So that's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Honestly, I think that's an underestimation, mm. really, from from the real numbers because we just don't really know because all that sort of stuff gets swept under the rug. It does. Yeah. So a big shout-out to Sea Shepherd for the wonderful ongoing work that they do because they do it all year round and um, I guess being mindful of but at the same time celebrating World Whale Day today. Absolutely. So next year on the 20th of February, we've got to get Dave Donnelly in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Celebrate some whales with us. <laughs> he was on uh, I was on last week or the week yeah, before, yeah. I think. So, yes, we'll, we'll note this one for Put next year. Put it in year. your diary, Dave. You're hired. <laughs> it's 9.09, coming up to 9.10. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with Rex about this uh, is it or is it not discovery of the Endeavour uh, off Oh. 917, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Without further ado, we welcome into uh, the Marinara world Rex Hunter, our maritime archaeology guru. Good morning, Rex. Uh, hi, Bon. Uh, suitable uh, introduction there. <laughs> She's going good, down, yeah. I actually I'm exactly. into a ukulele, I say. <laughs> Yes, I, I did think of you as I was listening to this the first time, Rex, and thinking how much you would probably enjoy it. And you're absolutely right. It's it's totally uh, – we should play a uh, maybe a little excerpt, not all six minutes, every time we get you on because really this is, what you, <laughs> this is what we talk about with you. So, um, yeah, let's go straight to the Endeavour and that announcement that was made a couple of weeks ago. Well, yeah, yeah, pretty exciting news really because, um, well, we, uh, we all, all basically know that Cook, um, Captain Cook – came out to uh, Australia in 1870 and uh, just confirmed what the, the uh, locals knew, that uh, Australia did, the east coast of Australia did exist. And they had known for like 60,000 years previously. But uh, Cook, Cook, Cook was an amazing um, navigator. So um, one of the reasons for coming out was to uh, go to Tahiti and uh, observe the transit of Venus. And that, that, allowed, that allowed to... Um, actually work out the distance to the sun. And that was important because that led to further tables that could work out your latitude and longitude at sea. So very important work. Um, and, of course, this is before the chronometer came out. So it was pioneering work. So um, we know that. And Cook Cook actually ran aground off uh, Cooktown and then proceeded up to uh, Batavia and then back to the UK, so in the endeavour. So the Endeavour was a, a Whitby collier, and Whitby was a, a coal town on the uh, east coast of uh, UK. And uh, Cook, Cook actually, what they could, what they say, he crawled up through the horse pipe. So Cook uh, worked his way up from um, just a lowly crew up until ship's captain, and eventually he became um, joined the navy and became a captain in the navy. So 
generally, if you want to get somewhere in the Navy back then, you needed a rich uncle or rich father to do something with his useless son. So, but Cook actually did it on merit alone. Uh, so the uh, the Whitley Colliers were a sort of special breed of ship. They were, you know, um, basically built like a duck and just meant to float. So very broad, flat bow, um, flat, very flat bottoms as well. And uh, very, very seaworthy because they just, you know, flop around, but maybe any maximum speed, probably five, five, six knots if they were lucky. So it was approximately 30 metres by about eight, nine metres and about five metres deep. So, but on board that, which is a fairly compact vessel, they had 94 people. So it's been pretty crowded. Um, so after Cook got back from... Um, his voyage across the Pacific and mapping the east coast of Australia, the vessel was sold and uh, went back to, became a store ship in, for the Navy back in the UK. And it was just sold in 1775 and renamed Lord Sandwich. It was originally built as the Earl of Pembroke as the Collier, then became the Endeavour and eventually became Lord Sandwich. And um, when the Revolutionary War broke out in the, in the North America, the uh, which was of course against the British, US uh, America against Britain. The uh, the Lord Sandwich became a transport vessel, so they transported um, soldiers out to the uh, out to North America to fight the uh, fight the locals and, and the French as well. So in 1778. Um, there was a fear that the French were going to come and storm Rhode Island. So the vessel was at Rhode Island, so they decided to um, sink, sink that and four other ships as block ships. And block ships, the idea of a block ship was just to block a passage so that the uh, enemy couldn't use it. That was sort of utilised in World War II as well with the Germans, you know, um, in harbours in Italy and all over the, the place, blocked up with old, old sailing, old steamers and all sorts of stuff. So you can't take away the advantage of, of that port. So, so Rex, was, Rex, I have a question about that. So did that mean that Endeavour was was seen, or the, uh, the the Lord Sandwich was uh, seen as a uh, a cheap dis- disposable ship? Because I can imagine that you don't just sink your best ships. No, it was, certainly wasn't a cheap disposable ship. It was just like a last, you know, it was just the uh, the nature of the panic of the time when they pulled out all the stops just to uh, block the harbour, just to ah, so it was a, a panic decision. Years. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. Uh, ships are worth a lot of still are worth a lot of money, so you wouldn't. As a sort of it, in desperation, and actually, of the uh, five ships they sank, one was eventually raised. So they they were sunk in about thirteen metres of water off Rhode Island, and. Um, Pretty dirty, pretty dirty water. Uh, I mean, these days, it's, you know, you've only had like half a metre metre vis if you're lucky. Rex, strong currents. Rex, how are they sunk? Did they just put a hole in the bottom of them and yeah, fill them up full of water? Yeah, just a hole inside. So it, that was sort of done in uh, Melbourne too when ships were on fire because you know we had nine nine ships catch on fire in Melbourne during the gold rush, and they just got the ship's carpenter to just cut a hole below just below the waterline, and eventually they'd take up and. Uh, Enough water in, more water on the inside uh, than not enough water on the outside, and to the bottom she went. So we've got the Endeavour, 
it's it's done its thing uh, here and in the South Pacific, and it's made its way uh, back to England, and then from there to America. I'm just sort of summarising this for people who might have only just tuned in, and <laughs> and we're at the time of the uh, American War of Independence, and there's some concern about the potential for um, to, for the French to come across, and the Endeavour's been sunk. And did you say 13 metres of water, not 30? Yeah, yeah, so, so it's quite shallow. shallow. Yeah. Yeah, not not terribly deep. So you can imagine. The mast probably would have stood up, you know, um, more or less, stood up, you know, 15, 20, 20 metres or something like that, I would imagine. So that would have, um, you know, blocked, effectively blocked the harbour. If you had, you know, five five ships sitting on the bottom, the, uh, vessels, can't, the vessels can't sail through there. So you, you've done your, it's done its job as a block ship. So, so did it work? Were they successful? Uh, well, I don't think the French ever took over North America. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Endeavour. <laughs> so let's, oh Lord Sandwich. Lord Sandwich. <laughs> I, know I can't sorry. get my head around that. No, either. I can't say it without laughing. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Rex, let's get to this big announcement that's been made because um, you, you mentioned that there were five, and I'm guessing more other ships that were sank, sunk at the same time, yeah. and and there's been this big because, of course, the significance of this vessel to to recent Australian history, I'll put it in those yeah. terms. Um, and there's been an announcement that, uh, you know, out of all of these ships that were sunk at the time, that which one is the Endeavour? So an announcement made at the start of February that, that, they, that the, the researchers have actually discovered which one is the Endeavour, but it's not as clear-cut as it might seem. Is that right? Uh, no, it depends who you, who you listen to, Bron, and who, you, who you're in contact with. <laughs> we'll listen to you, when Rex. When you've got the inside running, you can get the truth, I think. Yeah. So, so since the late 1990s, a crew from the um, Maritime Australian Maritime Museum have been travelling to Rhode Island to check out the uh, the four sites. So they do, you know, proper maritime archaeology, good diagnostics, and uh, they're working with... Uh, Dr. Bass, and she she's not a diver, so um, she she's a, she. There've been you could say there's been some conflict about what the archaeologists are saying is the Lord Sandwich, and what she, uh, Dr. Bass is saying no, it's not the Lord Sandwich. There's not enough evidence. What she wants basically is to find the ship's bell with the name uh, Lord Sandwich or Endeavour or Earl of Pembroke on it, and could imagine this vessel, you, know, you can imagine something like the uh, Alma de Pal, you sink that in 13 metres of water, and then you get a chainsaw and you just cut the, the top, you know, two-thirds of, uh, almost, yeah, two-thirds off, and you've only left a very, very small amount of hull sitting on the bottom, because just, you know, Torito worms and all sorts of stuff over the years have, have caused damage, and it was a, a electrical... Um, pipe ran, run across it to a, a naval base. So it's received quite a, a bit of um, damage in later years. And so they've done, done good diagnostic work. They've um, got timber samples and they've all, all proved to be European and, um, and English. So they've got, had got uh, experts from Australia and the US to check out the timber samples. Um, they've also... Uh, gone back and looked at original plans and that type of thing and the, the measurements. So the keel is the right measurement for the uh, the vessel, for the Endeavour. There's a, a, a... When they built large wooden ships, vessels, 
you can't virtually you haven't got enough timber to build a, a keel that's 30 meters long in one piece so they do a, what's called a scarf joint where you can imagine two diagonal joints lap over each other with a little key on each end so they slide in so they can't pull apart and they, that would be a series of scarf joints over the 30 odd meters probably no probably two at least two two scarf joints and these match the scarf joints that were built they have plans for a, a vessel called the HMS Adventure, and that was built by the same builder who built the um, Lord Pembroke. So that matches, uh, so the timber sample matches. And there's also some very, very crude repair works in the uh, floor frames. The floor frames are the, what generally people not in the know would call ribs, so they're, they're the floor frames. And they're, they're very, very, a number of them are very, very crudely made. So it looks like a slapdash job. And, and they seem to think that was done when the vessel ran aground off uh, on the Great Barrier Reef off Cooktown. So, so Rex, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty shortly. <laughs> just, just no, no, I've got another 12 pages to go do you want to make this a part two next time you're on or should we kind of cut to the chase? Do you... I, I want to know what Rex thinks. So, Rex, do you think it's a yay or a nay? Yeah, it's definitely the, uh, the um, Endeavour because all the other vessels were smaller. Endeavour was 368 tonnes and all the scantlings match a vessel for that size. Amazing. So I, I, I sent Kieran Hostie an email because I've known Kieran for over 30 years and he's one of the archaeologists and he's 100% convinced they've had peer reviews of the research done here and overseas, and everyone agrees. And the only stick in the mud is the uh, doctor of bass. But, yeah, I would definitely say it's it. Well, congratulations to them. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, good work. Yeah, yeah it's like 20, yeah, over 20 years' work, 22 years' work. And fantastic that you've resolved this big uh, big controversy for us, Rex, that um, <laughs> we've all been wondering. So we've, we have an answer finally and we'll let the uh, obvious um, politics yeah, play out as they need yeah, to. Yeah, they do. Keep we'll us get updated. Two opposing acad academics together and, you know, it's World War Three. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Rex. That was amazing. Okay, thanks. See you, guys. We'll catch you soon. All right. See you. See you. Bye okay. for now. Rex Hunter there. Wow, can you imagine you're one of the researchers and after 20 years you're finally getting your conclusions. That must be pretty satisfying. Yeah, definitely. 9.37 coming up to 9.38. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. And without further ado, let's cross to Dr Prue Francis from Deakin University. Good morning, Prue. Good morning. It's a lovely day. It is indeed. Um, now... Ocean literacy, where we left off last time we spoke with you last year, we were looking at the seven principles of ocean literacy. Um, yes, that's yeah. correct. So let's, I mentioned at the start of the program, this upcoming UNESCO Blue Curriculum uh, Toolkit. What's that all about? Yeah, so I, don't, I can um, reassure you that I don't have a quiz for both of you today, so you can oh, rest God. easy on, on that front. Thank you <laughs> so for just, that. Uh, you're welcome. Just more of an update. Um, so, yeah, this month there was a One Ocean Summit held by UNESCO as well as the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development Group, and they released what is called a New Blue Curriculum, and it's a toolkit for policymakers. And when I sort of say policymakers, it's anyone that wants to be involved in developing a ocean literacy curriculum for our school system. So it could be us as a researcher, but it could also be um, 
NGOs, but then also the um, Department of Education as well. So any sort of stakeholders in that education platform, this toolkit has been produced as a way, sort of a step to bring ocean literacy into the classrooms, and it does so hopefully through an innovative and inspiring sort of methods because it sort of presents case studies of other countries that have started to implement it, and we can sort of use their case studies as best practices moving forward to new countries and new education platforms that might like to implement this blue curriculum. What have you seen so far with this, Prue, when you're looking at different countries and that the way that they approach ocean literacy, is there much variation? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, one thing that I will point out here is that, you know, after reading this document, Australia really should have been in here as a case study, given that we're a marine nation, a lot of us live very close to the coast. We should have been one of these case studies to show the world how we can learn about the ocean because we do have the ocean and we all have some sort of connection to the ocean here in Australia. So that was a bit of a disappointment, I have to say, but hopefully we'll get there in the next um, future. But, yeah, what I sort of saw was that... Um, one thing that stood out to me in Portugal, which that program's called Blue Schools Network, and that's now reaching out through to Brazil and South Africa and now into European countries where they're taking the toolkit or taking ocean literacy and those seven principles I talked about last year and applying it to their country and their cultural um, considerations, the stakeholders that are there and, and sort of modifying it to best suit uh, not only just the curriculum in general, but to suit on a school-by-school -school basis, which I think is very clever because not you know the ocean literacy principles may not is not be a one shoe fits all. It needs to be developed to suit a school that might be right close to the beach to a school that might be three or four hundred kilometres inland and can't really hasn't really seen a beach or, or been to the ocean as often as that other school was. So I felt that was quite clever how they have readapted. That tool, um, the toolkit to suit their purposes. Yeah, and it, and it, it probably uh, it, it's good to have it culturally sensitive as well, right? So does does the toolkit allow for that? Because you know, obviously, we have so many different cultures all over the world that that are dependent on oceans or need to learn about oceans. Um, so so is there is there provision for that to, um, yeah, to 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 really adhere to those culturally sensitive um, principles? Yeah, that's a really good point. So the toolkit really just skims the surface. So I don't think it's quite there. There still needs to be... That toolkit probably needs to be um, offered in different languages for starters and also, yeah, taking any... I think it, it guides you through how you could potentially implement the blue curriculum. And so there's some um, questions that sort of get you prompted to think, OK, well, what would suit our particular area where we would like to implement a blue curriculum into our schools versus, you know, and maybe even a different state in Australia, what would suit sort of their purposes? So I think those prompting questions will help develop what a cultural uh, aspect might look for that particular region. But again, we just need to think about how this is going to be applied worldwide and then down to that local scale at, you know, at an individual school. What are the timeframes for this, Prue, as this gets developed? Is there any, any sense of when it might be available or, or ready for uh, our curriculum leaders to embed it into, into what's being taught in the classroom? Yeah, so this particular toolkit has been developed based on the ocean decade that we're currently in. And when this um, during the summit this month, the Director-General, Audrey Azoulay, basically said she would like um, this 
blue curriculum to be implemented in every school across the world by 2025. So that was a big call. I don't think we're in Australia going to get to that, but it is good timing that this toolkit has come out because I do believe the Australia curriculum is under review at the moment. So this is a really good chance for Australian um, educators to sort of think about how this could be implemented, whether or not formally in the curriculum, but just giving this toolkit to teachers to showcase that it can be taught across curricula. It doesn't have to be in science. It doesn't have to be in um, the history sort of section of the curriculum. It can actually be a cross-disciplinary approach and can be done in a really um, effective way that brings the whole school, so a holistic sort of approach to, to implementing it. Yeah, it's interesting. It was exactly what I was thinking, like where would you embed it? Because you think about, you know, all the different subjects that kids are taught and you could you, you can see the ocean in all of them. Like where would you actually put it? Where yeah, would, exactly right. So well, I would put it as an inquiry-based learning. So it would be kind of a, a term-type approach where all the school embraces an ocean-themed, so when they're going to do a you know literacy, that they're learning about a book that's got an ocean-themed uh, example. And then they might go down to the beach for a well-being day to play in the sand. So it's all these sort of small connections that builds that ocean literacy without having to teach it in science and teach those fundamentals. But it's a it's sort of that cross-disciplinary approach. And you know, with, for PE, they could go to the beach and have a swim, for example, or, or go snorkeling or go for a canoe uh, on, on the water. So there's lots of different ways to do it and this toolkit actually gives examples and ideas of how you could do that cross-disciplinary approach so you're not having to throw more content into already overcrowded curriculum. Um, let's stay tuned on this one because it's really exciting uh, in terms of what's being developed. 2025, three years time, I don't know, I can see it. Yeah. I, I guess, yeah. you know, it depends on how, how much we want to crank these wheels and get it going. But uh, I can see that it, it comes down to, I guess, what might potentially be in the way, what sort of blockers you might have to reaching that time frame. But I don't know. I can see it potentially working. Yeah. And, and where can people access this information and these kits, Prue? Um, so, yeah, the, if you just go onto the UNESCO um, website, you should be able to access it. But if you're having trouble, because it, it has just been released, so it's not an easy PDF to find. So feel free to reach out and email me and I can send you a copy as well. So um, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm impressed with this toolkit and I think that it's a good first step for educators to have a look at that curriculum and, and see where it's going to fit in in a wider approach. Excellent. We've got a couple of minutes left and I did want to talk a bit about, you mentioned this survey, Ocean's IQ, uh, and the idea that results of this survey will create this best practice standard of ocean literacy teaching. What's Ocean's IQ all about? Yeah, good question. So Ocean's IQ is a, a local free online marine portal here in Victoria. So they're hoping to share ocean stories and resources for marine educators. So um, this project is getting run by Jodie Plekis and Shree Maris and also Harry Bridal, who is legendary in the ocean literacy space. And so they're looking at, at the moment, the project is going to hopefully develop this online portal, so a one-stop shop where all the Victorians, because we've got some amazing marine education centres, informal providers out there in Victoria alone, if not Australia. And so what Oceans IQ are hoping to do at the moment, they're looking at doing a resource review, so seeking um, information from all the marine educators in Victoria to ask what they're doing, 
what are they sort of resources do they have and then they're going to condense that hopefully into an online portal where you can go a teacher a classroom teacher can go and access one website and find all the necessary information that they need in um, marine education so that is hopefully a small stepping stone that can help overcome one of the barriers of, of putting ocean literacy into our school is those lack of resources and giving the teachers some easy resources that can help them start implementing some of these um, ocean knowledges that we're, we're lacking at the moment. So it's a very, very exciting project. I'm helping out in that space as well, as well as some of our Deakin University students will be helping through the project, through various work integrated learning subjects that we have within our school. So watch this space. Hopefully next time I'm on, I'll be able to give you a bit of an update of how that um, resource review went. Yeah, it almost feels like this is getting a little bit ahead of the curve of the UNESCO work that's underway. So um, <laughs> in, in the absence of any sort of uh, any action by any levels of government, that this work might actually start to get the ball rolling, which is fantastic. Yeah, 2025 might actually be on the card. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. And this is the first time, you know, that, that I think we're starting to move forward in it. It's been talked about and been talked about. And here in Australia, you know, with the research that we're doing in the ocean literacy space, we're about to publish some really good evidence base of why we need to implement ocean literacy. So hopefully I'll have an update on those in the next couple of months as well. So this is, again, that um, another piece of evidence that, you know, we're making tracks. So how about schools, we, you know, the, the next step is to identify a school that would be keen to do this and use that as a case study to implement the ocean literacy um, principles and build sort of that impact research evidence that shows that it's working and it can be done quite well and then build upon that across um, our, our schools across Australia. Yeah, brilliant. Hey, thanks, Prue. It's been wonderful speaking with you and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon and hopefully give a bit more information on Oceans IQ uh, and, uh, yeah, talk more ocean literacy because it's such an important topic. Yes, I agree, and I look forward to it. Thank really? you for having me. Oh, always a pleasure. Thanks, Prue. Catch you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye for now. Dr. Prue Francis there from Deakin University talking about ocean literacy. I love how much is happening in that space. I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Whoop. Do I have a mic? I have a mic. Hoorah. We are back on. We are crossing to New Zealand live at the moment to speak with Dr. Marianne Anugord. Uh, she is a marine biologist and a research associate of the Auckland Museum. And she's also the co-founder of the Ocean Sunfish Research Trust in New Zealand. Now, after diving with sunfish on a holiday in Indonesia, Marianne became so captivated with these strange fish that she quit her job and embarked on a PhD to study them. And haha, she thought after a PhD it would be done. But no. She has now been researching MOLA for 10 years and has made some fascinating discoveries, including that of a previously undescribed sunfish species from New Zealand waters that she called MOLA tecta. Uh, Marianne recently co-founded the New Zealand Ocean Sunfish Research Trust using citizen science sunfish projects to promote ocean awareness and conservation. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to get into this. Um, and uh, Marianne... I think we just have to start with the first question because people may have heard of sunfish before, but what, what do they actually look like? Oh, they are famous for perhaps two things. One being extremely large, and so they can grow to over three meters in length and weigh over two ton. But in uh, addition to that, they look super weird, like aliens almost. Um, so if you imagine a fish, a big round plate, that if you look at it from the front, it's really skinny. And if you look at it from the side, it's just enormous. 
and it doesn't have a tail at all so it just has this kind of little flap to the back and it looks like a huge fish head basically that swims yeah and weirdly <laughs> they are so strange its body at all so a normal fish will beat its tail but this thing can't actually move its body so instead it has two large fins that it uses for almost like flying underwater imagine a penguin flying underwater this is what this thing does and so, then it has this tiny little mouth like a hoover that's always open and then huge eyes that look at you as if you were the alien. <laughs> this is where radio fails us because, you know, we can describe this, but you've really got to look it up on Google. Everybody put in MOLA, M-O-L-A, and we'll put a link to our Facebook page as well. Now, Marianne, you've been doing research on this for 10 years and... One of the things that struck me when I was trying to do a bit of research after the one in, uh, you know, in 13th Beach washed up is that we really don't know a lot about them. They're so mysterious and, and, and you have really contributed to most of the knowledge in the last 10 years that we have about this creature. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, how that process went? Well, I got a make a shout out here to my fellow Mola colleagues. Many people are contributing to knowledge these days, but I guess where I have helped uh, clarify things is in the taxonomy. So how many species there are. So up until a few years ago, all the sunfishes were basically just lumped in under one large weird creature. But today we know that there are five species and four of these grow really large and they prefer different temperatures. So we don't see all of them together. They kind of, uh, you know, fan out and look for the temperatures that they like. So some are tropical and some are temperate. And so the one that washed up recently was a Mola alexandrini, which is the one that grows largest of all. So that can reach at least 2.3 ton in body weight. And uh, that actually prefers slightly warmer waters, but sometimes we do see them further south if the warm water flows further south with the currents and so forth. So this, I guess, is where I've had um, a, an impact on molar knowledge, is trying to clarify how each of these species look like so we can actually tell them apart and start understanding where each of them occur. Yeah, and uh, so you were able to describe a, a new species, Mola tecta. Now, how, do you, how did you do that? Was that through DNA research or through larvae or how, what happened there? <laughs> well, it was like a treasure hunt because I didn't actually look for this species. I was doing population genetics on Mola alexandrini and I got the fisheries in New Zealand to collect skin samples. Um, and when I analysed these, some of them turned up as uh, we just didn't know what they were. They clustered by themselves, which means they were very different to sequences we knew from other species. And so I knew where it was. I just didn't know how it looked like. And at that stage, we didn't even quite know how Mola alexandrini looked like. So it was really a process of looking at a lot of social media posts to see what were people seeing in New Zealand? How did the sunfishes look there? and then just fly to strandings, take DNA samples and have a good look at how the species look like. So it was very iterative and a very, very long process. Yeah, and I love how you, uh, I love the common name of the, of the Mola Tecta as well. Um, how did you get to that? The Hoodwinker. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just 
working with sunfishes, they just hoodwink you constantly. You think you know something and the next moment uh, they prove you wrong. And this species had managed to swim under the radar of all science, you know, all fishery scientists and taxonomists since the 1600s. So, and a lot of different species of sunfishes have been described through the ages. And so everyone kind of described their own sunfish. And at some stage, you know, with reviews of the taxonomy, it became apparent a lot of these were just, you know, different sizes of the same species. But mole detector, the hoodwinker, just did not get, uh, yeah, it swam under the radar and was just unregistered until recently. That's amazing. And um, now another big mystery that uh, you and your colleagues are un uncovering at the moment is, I, I remember in 2017, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the first larvae, like tiny, tiny, tiny sunfish were discovered uh, off the coast of Australia. Um, and it was very, very surprising to, to researchers that those tiny little things were actually sunfish, right? Like, what happened there? Because I, I looked at the photos of larvae sunfish, and they basically look like a baby Pokemon before it evolves into, like, this thing that you can't even recognize anymore. Uh, they, they look like these tiny, tiny pinpricks, balls, a little bit like puffer fish with, like, spiky bits and really big googly eyes. Um, and how, how did anyone ever connect that to being a sunfish larvae. I wish it had been me making that connection, but that was actually made way, way before. So we always knew that these tiny little things became sunfishes. We just couldn't tie which larvae to the different species. So the discovery wasn't nearly as exciting. We just managed to genetically identify the first larvae ever of the sunfishes and tie it to Mola alexandrini, which is, of course, the world's largest bony fish species of all, or heaviest bony fish species. So that was what was so exciting. But actually, back in the 1600s, the first sunfish larvae were found, and people back then didn't make the connection. They just couldn't imagine that that tiny thing would grow into this massive thing. Yeah, it looks but very strange. But later on, the, the old naturalists, they did make this connection. It's just the material across the world of early life stages is so scarce, and we just do not understand why are these things not seen more often. Where are all the larvae? Where are all the eggs? Where are the early life stages? So because plenty they... of uh, plenty of mysteries there. Sorry, yep. we have to wrap it up. I could talk about this forever, um, <laughs> but we we spoke <laughs> briefly in our um, in our, in our interview before that what to do when you find a stranded mola in Victoria. So I might need to put that on the Facebook page. Um, so if you are listening and you find a mola, check out the Facebook page of Radio Marinara, and uh, Marianne has left us some really good tips on how to help with the research and progress the science in this space as a citizen scientist. This was uh, Radio Marinara, Dr. Marianne Nugor, marine biologist uh, at the Auckland Museum. Thank you so much, Marianne. Thanks, Marianne. Also, Thank you for having me. Great, wonderful. We hope to have you back on again. We'll organise that for sure. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.